Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Catherine Blunt, who covers renewable energy and utilities for the Wall Street Journal. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of the new book, California Burning. So welcome to the interview, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Now, as a Canadian uh, and one living on the West Coast, we've been watching for, it seems like, years and years now as California, every summer it burns. And uh, I have friends down there. Uh, they've been, you know, it's, it's a tragedy in the in in their uh, in their lives. Uh, and this book is about Pacific Gas and Electric, the, one of the big utilities in California. How it started, where it got to, how it got to where it is, and the role that it's played, I, I gather, in some of these wildfires that we've been we've been watching. So maybe let's start with. You know, an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, the last 20 years in particular have been extremely challenging for PG&E for one reason or another. But all eyes really were on the company in 2018 when one of its high voltage transmission towers failed, dropping a, dropping a wire, an arc of electricity surged from the wire, sparks fell in the dry brush beneath the tower, which is in the remote reaches of Northern California, and uh, ultimately a fire ignited that killed 84 people. It was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history. And uh, it was far from the only fire that the, the company's power lines had, had started in um, the years prior to that. And, uh, you know, it was um, hugely consequential for the, the company and its customers. Um, of course, I mean, beyond the, the death and the destruction, PG had to seek bankruptcy protection after this uh, as a result of the liability cost it incurred. And um, so it was, uh, in, you know, it was a story that really, the, the, it begs the question, how did the company get into such dire straits? And, and the book aims to explain the many challenges and risks that converged to create these circumstances. Well, let's talk about um, the, some of the history of, of PG&E. Uh, I know your book talks about how it was a legacy company built by, you call them visionaries. Uh, it uh, has played a huge role in the history of the of California and the growth of its economy. Uh, so walk us through some of uh, PG&E's history uh, from the, I guess it was founded in, 19, uh, in the early 1920s uh, up to today. Yeah, even earlier than that, as a matter of fact, um, it has roots dating back to the the gold rush. Um, it really began to form in earnest with the, um, you know, there are two men in particular who recognized, um, who recognized the potential of having a large companies delivering electricity to customers in, in Northern California, particularly in San Francisco. And they acquired a number of tiny sort of power startups that were um, popping up throughout the region. And, uh, you know, there was it only really ever had one real competitor that was a company called Great Western Power. 
that built a, a large and very valuable transmission system to carry hydroelectric power from the Sierra foothills down to San Francisco. And so the, the companies ultimately merged in 1930, creating the Northern California monopoly that we know today. Um, you know, that company had a lot of financial might. There was still the need to build an enormous amount of infrastructure. So it, it did so, you know, helped promote job growth, economic prosperity, um, you know, a well-regarded company for a long time. Um, but of course, you know, some of as infrastructure, both the infrastructure that it built itself, as well as, you know, the infrastructure the Great Western built um, is extremely old. These, these were some of the first transmission lines ever built. And the, the, the line that ignited the ultimately ignited the campfire was truly a century old. Um, and the specific hook that broke and dropped the wire was original, was original equipment hung around 1920 or 1921. So um, it was a, I mean, a fascinating lens through which to, to view this history and sort of what transpired over 100 years. Well, I, I've heard it said uh, that uh, the United States power grid is kind of old and creaky. And is it fair to say then that uh, PG&E's system uh, was a good example of that? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, no question about it. Yes. I mean, the, the grid is old nationwide. Um, there are a lot of transmission lines in particular were built just after World War II to support population growth, but some, some predate the war. And in this case, these did. And these were truly some of the first transmission systems built. I mean, they, the, the, it was built not long after transmission was proven as a viable concept, you know, so it's, uh, I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, old infrastructure and in, old infrastructure in remote places, which makes managing it very difficult. So I think, you know, everybody agrees now that the uh, energy transition, we're 20, 30, 40 years into it, it's accelerating. Uh, part of uh, climate policy is to electrify everything, and California is one of the leaders of that. And I've always thought it was a bit of a, a contradiction, a, a paradox maybe, that the leader in adopting renewables, the leader in electrifying trans, uh, transportation, the leader in so many other clean energy technologies has this creaky old, you know, uh, century old transmission system. And it sounds like the, the electricity system in general and the transmission uh, system uh, in particular, uh, how, do you, how, does, how does California square those two problems? Yeah, you know, I think that certainly within the last few decades, more has been done to build. I mean, it's not to say that the entire transmission system is 100 years old, right? I mean, there are components of it that are, there are certain parts of the system that are. In PG&E's case, these are old uh, 115 kV lines that, you know, is a specific voltage class that's sort of indicative of that period. Of course, they've done more to build 230 kV, 500 kV, that really the backbone of the grid, so to speak. I mean, those those are those are more modern. Um, but I mean, it's true that it's it is interesting to consider sort of where the focus of where PG&E's focus has been over the years, as well as that of other utilities. I mean, really, the focus has been on large population centers, right? The line serving the Bay Area, for example, in PG&E's case. And, you know, by contrast, a lot of these old 115 kV lines are up in the Sierra foothills. They don't serve an enormous number of people. It's much less of a dense population base. And so, um, you know, this is just one of the many challenges the company has, has faced, but it's often used reliability statistics to determine the health of its system, right? And if a line goes out that serves an enormous number of people, that has a larger impact on, on reliability stats. So, um, you know, it, it was easier to sort of... Um, 
kind of forget about these other lines, so to speak, that were in more remote areas serving fewer numbers of people. It's it sounds like the sort of the, the twin pressures of of climate change and in particular the the drought that California has been suffering for years and years, and the the accelerating energy transition and electrification of everything. Uh, it sounds like it's 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 brought California to somewhat of a, a crisis uh, in it confronting these kind of problems. There's no doubt that there's a huge number of challenges that the state faces. I mean, PG&E is a good lens through which to view this because over the last 10 years or so, California has been consumed by some very severe drought periods, exacerbated by climate change. Tens of millions of trees throughout its service territory have died, making the consequence of a single spark from a faulty power line much higher than they'd been, it had been historically. And so there needs to be a lot of money spent, whether that be capital or, or you know expense, there's a lot of money spent um, reducing that risk. And we are the company PGE and the other California utilities are preparing for a future in which there is greater demand on the grid for the first time in a long time because demand has plateaued for a while as a result of energy efficiency and other things. But as we you know prepare to add more EVs, um, do more to phase natural gas out of homes and businesses, um, it demand is expected to increase. So you know other capital improvements need to be made to prepare the grid for that additional strain. How is PG&E's management coping with this, you know, this very difficult situation that it's been in uh, for the last uh, five years or so? Uh, are they demonstrating real leadership? Uh, are they handling this competently? Is their confidence within the within California uh, that it can cope with this and and you know rise to the challenges? Yeah, um, well, the company is under new leadership after the um, 20 uh, after the it emerged from um, the second bankruptcy in the middle of 2020, a new CEO came in in, in January of 2021. And six months later, a tree fell on a distribution line in the remote reaches of Northern California, not far from where the campfire ignited and ultimately ignited the second largest fire in California history. Um, at that time, this new CEO made a very bold decision to announce a new strategy that the company is planning to employ, which is to bury 10,000 miles of distribution wire. If the line is underground, it can't start a fire. Um, but, you know, it was a risky time to make this announcement because the company hadn't really flushed out the plan. It wasn't exactly sure which circuit should go underground, how it was going to manage it from a cost standpoint, engineering standpoint, labor standpoint. And so, she, but I mean, her, thought process was that, I mean, you can't just go up there and say, I'm sorry that this happened again, right? They, they were already working on the plan. And so she said, like, we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. We'll pledge, we'll pledge to do this. But there are real challenges in doing this, um, not least of which is the cost. They estimated it'll cost $20 billion. Um, rates in California are already very high as a result of a number of different things. They're begun, you know, rising even higher as a, because of Right. You know, alongside natural gas prices, of course, this general inflationary environment in, in which we're living. And so, you know, how the company is able to manage those costs and ultimately hopefully reduce the cost of undergrounding over time is going to be critical. And it's, it's not going to happen overnight. So, and even if it did happen overnight, risks remain. I mean, risks, the, there is inherent risk here. Um, and so I don't think the company is ever going to be able to reduce the risk to zero. That would be near impossible. 
Um, but it is it is trying. It has the potential, <clears throat> excuse me, the undergrounding plan has the potential to really change the, the risk profile of the service territory, but it's going to be, you know, a lengthy process and a very challenging one. Now, who's going to pay for it is, uh, I know, always a challenge in California. You mentioned that California already has high rates. Part of that, I understand, is because there are charges added for things like wildfire mitigation and so on that are added on to the to the to the to the uh, rate uh and so that puts a, a bit of a check on the capital available to do these kinds of projects now the uh, congress passed and president biden signed not that long ago the inflation reduction act and grid modernization is part of that and there are other pieces of legislation and other sources of funds uh, designed to harden and, and improve the U.S. grid. Is that capital going to make a difference in California? In it's this- a great question. And, you know, it's I, I likely need to look at this a little bit more closely or talk to those who have. Uh, you know, it's my understanding that a lot of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the, you know, the, infra- the bipartisan infrastructure bill, are sort of focused on either, you know, potentially speeding the build out of new transmission, speeding the build out of new clean energy projects, um, you know, especially given some of the delays that we've seen recently. It's my understanding that that's the greatest focus of the bill, which is to help alleviate some of the supply challenges and, you know, modernize the grid by virtue of building new transmission and other things. In terms of, you know, hardening the existing infrastructure, I'm sure there's provisions that would allow for that. I don't know whether that would be available in this case. But I mean, if it if it were, I mean, I, certainly that has would have the potential to help because it is a, a huge capital undertaking at a, at a time in which it's becoming more challenging to pass those costs on to consumers. Now, I, I've interviewed uh, a couple of experts about microgrids in in the U.S. and particularly in in California, and that looks. I know it's early days and there aren't many of them around, but. It, it looks like that might be a potential potential solution, but that also uh, cuts into PG&E's game, uh, treads on some toes there. Are microgrids or community grids, local grids, uh, emerge, are, are they a potential solution? And if they are, what might be the utility's take on them? I think they're part of the solution. And I think, as a matter of fact, you know, PG&E is involved in building some for certain um, communities and in particular ones that are at risk of having their power preemptively shut off during um, high wildfire threat periods. Um, one thing that PG&E has started doing in recent years on a fairly regular basis is, is proactively shutting off the power when the winds pick up, making it in, increasing the likelihood of equipment failure of some kind, whether that be like actual mechanical failure or a tree branch getting stuck in a live wire. So by you know proactively shutting off the power, you reduce that risk. But there are some communities that have experienced this very frequently, especially during the fall when the winds pick up because they're you know in, in areas in which the risk is very high. So I think they see real potential for microgrids to be able to just maybe help keep some of the power on during these periods. And in general, I mean, if we're talking about a, a larger proliferation of these microgrids may be similar to other sort of distributed energy technology. It reduces the need for some of the investments in the centralized system, big transmission, you know, widespread distribution networks. And so um, I think it's probably part of the solution, but it's sort of hard from at least where I sit to foresee a future in which it's, you know, that is the solution to all of the problem. When you talk to uh, PG&E and, and uh, because you, you cover this area, uh, you know, I'm, 
I, I've talked to a, a number of people who, you know, we're, they're discussing the evolution of the utility business model. So you mentioned distributed energy resources uh, like wind and primarily solar, I guess, in, in California, and the potential to flatten that, that vertical, vertically integrated utility model so that it becomes like a platform so that that and consumers become prosumers they produce they consume they sell they buy and on on this platform and i don't know if it's related to uh the the issue around fires but it seems it would be related to the issue around transmission are we seeing pg and e go in that direction um there's certainly been a i mean a there's a huge penetration of rooftop solar in California, um, as a, in part because of incentives that were implemented a very long time ago, and um, there's you know there's certain mandates right as it relates to building new homes and having solar access. There's a debate as to you know to, in terms of the prosumer, how the prosumer should be compensated for selling power back to the grid. This is definitely a topic of conversation in California, and I think that there's an understanding that solar rooftop solar generation specifically specifically combined with battery storage could you know potentially be aggregated in a way that will help manage i mean the serious supply demand challenges that the state has seen in the last several years um it's challenging for a number of reasons there's questions about you know affordability and access for for different customers in terms of being you know vertically integrated the california utilities really haven't been vertically integrated since the 90s when they sold off the majority of their power plants to create the california wholesale power market um but you know, the, the question remains, though, is like to it's it would be challenging all of a sudden for every consumer to have some there are some consumers that, that can't have access to this, in, you know, specifically. And so there's always going to be some need for that centralized infrastructure. Um, maybe it's you know, you can change the configuration of the system in the future to a larger extent, but it will still be needed and there are still questions about you know how it is maintained and operated and i i'm so it sounds like uh california is changing the it's its model uh but there are limits there are limits to it how does all of the those change how might all of those changes affect its response to wildfires because it doesn't look like drought is going away anytime soon uh, climate change is now become a hot topic. It, it, you know, we're, we're having, I mean, even up in British Columbia, where we normally have like a Seattle type of temperate climate, uh, we're seeing heat domes of, of, you know, 40 C and so on. And it down in, in California looks to be, you know, that much worse. So as that either continues or gets worse, how does the change in technology and, and the utilities business model regulations, how does that play into managing wildfires? Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone involved in this issue has a role to play. I mean, there's a question about forest management. It's both a state and a federal issue. There's a lot of federal forests in California. There's a lot of state forests. There's been a lot of conversation about how do you better manage the forest so that you minimize the likelihood of a, you know, a, a, or help reduce the, the likelihood of a blaze truly just raging out of control, like some of those fires that we've seen in, in recent years. The regulator, the California Public Utilities, Utilities Commission has been trying to do more by way of safety oversight, something that it has historically struggled with, which has played into the problem. Um, 
you know, PG&E, of course, I mean, if there's one good takeaway of the story, they've never been more aware of the risk, right? They've never been working harder to manage it, even though it is this truly, I mean, it's a stunning problem in its scope. And so um, it's, uh, everyone involved has a role to play in, in risk in this risk management. Um, but there's like, as we've also had seen in recent years is that, you know, the legislatures had to take increasing steps to help utilities manage some of this liability cost that results from what seems to be inevitable fires started by their, their power lines. So, you know, it remains to be seen. And it's certainly really a touchy subject and really a, a political liability for the state at this point. I mean, the, the number of fires ignited by power line equipment so, um, yeah, it's uh, things are changing, but I mean, get, truly getting ahead of the problem is, is going to take more time if possible, if it's even possible. Well, let's wrap up the interview with this question then. Are you optimistic that California will eventually solve this problem, say, in the you know next two to five years? I think that two to five years is is greatly optimistic. Um, I don't I don't think that there. I, I, so it may there's. What does it even mean to solve the problem, right? I mean, wildfire has been happening in California for a really long time, and it's not just attributable to power lines. Um, I think that progress can be made in the next two to five years, but it's probably a longer period of time before you see really substantial and sustainable risk reduction. Catherine, uh, good luck with the sales of your book. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.